We try to play with great pace. We try to play with great pace. Ran a lot of pick and roll, pick and pop uh, type actions. Oh, you'll see us play. Some people look at the guy next to him and say, what the hell was that shot? Hell, I could have been Gronk before Gronk was Gronk. Welcome back to another episode of, of Bangarangs and Daggers. This is your host, Stay at Home, Kevin Knight. Uh, we're back with a very, very special episode this week. A uh, person near and dear to my heart has joined us for a special interview. He's not a Nebraska Cornhusker, but uh, today we have Jack Phelan joining us. Uh, Jack is a former national champion in college basketball with the DePaul Blue Demons and went on to play at the very start of the National Basketball Association uh, for a few seasons. He has an absolutely fascinating uh, life story and we were lucky enough to have him sit down with us for a little bit today to talk about how uh, he got recruited by Ray Meyer with DePaul. Uh, Ray was a Hall of Fame coach in college basketball from 1942 to 1984 all at DePaul during that time frame, won an NIT title, made it to the NCAA Final Four twice, and uh, just truly outstanding career, both with Ray Meyer at DePaul and absolutely fascinating story with Jack. So I hope that you all uh, enjoy it. And without further ado, let's get to our interview with him. And with us now, we have Jack Phelan. Jack played for the DePaul Blue Demons in Chicago from 1943 to 1945, including a 1945 NIT championship title with George Mikan. He left for the Navy and came back from 47 to 49 and proceeded to play in the NBA for a few years with the Waterloo Hawks and the Sheboygan Redskins. Thanks for joining us, Jack. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Nice to talk with you. How are you, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad. I'm I'm sure the weather's a lot nicer down there in Florida where you're at than it is up here in D.C. Uh, but... Unfortunately, not at the moment. We've got a thunderstorm going through. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Well, but that's uh, all right. We need uh, the rain. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be good then, at least. Um, but yeah, so you uh, you played with DePaul back in the day, and uh, can you tell us about that? Well, I'd be more than glad to. Uh, in 1943, when I graduated from high school, uh, I was not quite 20 or 18 years old. Yet. I was only 17. And uh, I asked my parents if I could go to college. And I got the voice back from my mother saying, there is no way that we can afford something like that. And after a discussion with my parents, I said, if I pay for my own way all the way through college and it doesn't cost you anything, can I still live at home and go to college? Well, they talked about it and said they would work that out, and that was sounded fine. DePaul University was only four or five miles away from where I lived at that time, so that was what I was thinking on there. I got to the university in early September and enrolled and uh, was able to get there, and in my first day of enrollment, uh, I went attended my first class, and I went, I went to uh, have some lunch, and Ray Meyer came up to me and looked at me and he said, you're a tall kid. Do you play basketball? And I said, well, I did in high school, but I'm sorry I couldn't do that right now. I work for a living. I have a job from 2 o'clock to 8 o'clock every night on it. 
And he looked and he says, tell you what, could you come over and work out just for an hour or so for me and let me see what you can do. So I agreed to do that. We went over to the gym and had a workout. And at the end of the workout, he looked at me and he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll offer you a scholarship. You won't have to worry about paying. And I said, whoa, I just paid the bill for the scholarship, uh, for the schooling. In those days, it was $10 an hour for a semester hour. So I had given him 150 bucks for 15 semester hours. I'll never forget that. And I said, can I get my money back? He says, no, we couldn't do that. But we will guarantee you a second semester scholarship. Well, I really didn't know much about scholarships. So I talked to my parents about it. Dad came down and talked with Ray Meyer. And we accepted his offer to do this. And that's how I got started at the university. At that point, from that point on, it was basketball. What else do you want to know? <laughs> well, that's uh, quite a um, quite the fun introduction to it, too. Uh, I know Ray Meyer was a uh, 42-year um, or 42-season coach with DePaul. Uh, that's correct, right? That is correct, yeah. Yep. And uh, so in – oh, sorry. Coach, of course, is a Hall of Famer. You know that. And – I don't remember the exact number of games he won, but it was over 730 games or something like that. And uh, that was in the days when you weren't playing 40 ball games in a season on it. Uh, more of our seasons were 25 to 30 games seasons on it. I I believe it was north of 30 of his seasons. He uh, had a winning season, and it was no wait. Mate, um, I think it was almost 40 seasons that he had a winning record. Uh, in them, and it was about 30, maybe around 30 seasons that he had 20-plus wins? No, that, that I don't doubt at all. We had a lot of 20-plus wins. My my first year at the university, we uh, had, you have to remember now, this is World War II time. People are at war, and a lot of people are gone ready way to colleges. And uh, we had only a few ball players that were returning from a team the previous year. They had a fellow named Dick Tripto, who was a senior, and then George Mikan, who was a sophomore at that time, and a guy named Nick Comerford, who was a sophomore, and a couple of others. I don't remember the names offhand on there. Other than that, everyone that was on the team were freshmen right out of high school. And um, they were coming off, uh, when you joined them in the fall of 43, uh, they were Mm -hmm. coming off an NCAA Final Four appearance, correct? That that is correct. They had made the tournament right on that. So uh, George was a beginning. He was just at the start of his career, really. And uh, they've everybody thought at first he was just nothing but a big clumsy guy. In fact, the coach of Notre Dame turned him down because he'll never learn coordination. He said, "Well, George learned coordination with no trouble at all over a lot of hard hard work on there of doing things." I know he did a lot of small things that people don't know about. Learning how to dance was a big item. Just learning to move the feet properly and so forth. Uh, he worked very, very hard to get where he was at all the time. Now, um, you had a theory about his elbows, I believe, if I remember that <laughs> right. Isn't that correct? Yeah, right. He had, without a doubt, the sharpest and hardest elbows in the world. Um his pivot move that we he made, whether left-handed or right-handed, it always extended the opposite arm from what he was shooting with, 
the elbow came out and it kind of destroyed your arm. You had to make sure you had your arm up to protect your body at all times because when he swung that elbow out, it hurt. I have to tell you, at that time, I was about six foot five and maybe 205 pounds. George was six foot 10 to six foot 11 in that range, and he was 260 pounds. So giving away 50 to 60 pounds in weight was a heck of a lot of weight. And when that elbow flew out, at first, when I first started learning how to guard him and I got my arm up, my arms were so sore at night, they would wrap them in uh, liniment and gauze to get rid of the swelling on it because he pounded on them so hard. Yeah, I knew his elbows real well. <laughs> in fact, actually, I'll uh, I'll skip ahead a little bit here and we'll come back um, in a moment to that season. But uh, speaking of his elbows, um, in the 44-45 season, uh, you guys had a bit of a dust-up in that last practice before <laughs> you got on the train to New York City. You are 100% correct on that. What happened, we were going, uh, we were getting a practice at our gym, and the train was going to be like 5 or 5.30 that night, uh, taking off for New York. And the uh, coach says, come on, we need a good heavy workout here. And I was guarding George at that time and on the second string. And we had a, one of those days when the ball kept going in the net. And we were doing real well as a second string, actually giving them a real stiff competition. Well, George got a little hot under the collar because we were putting the tees on him and putting the ne needle into him a little bit. And he came down one day, at uh, one time, I should say. He threw that el left elbow line. He got me on the right side of my face and snapped two of my molars on the right upper part of my mouth, just snapped them right off at the gum. I lost both teeth at one time. I was a little bit upset with him at that moment. And I turned around and hit him as hard as I could in the face with a fist. And I drove his glasses into the edges of his cheeks a little bit. And he wound up with a couple of little stitches in the face. And uh, so that was our start. And when then from there, after going to the doctors and dentists, we wound up on the train that night. Now, uh, the coach helped you out on that, though, uh, to the jealousy of some of your teammates. Isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the coach so much as it was Eddie Kohler, our trainer. We were sitting in the club car, and uh, he brought over one of these little small bottles of whiskey that they serve you in uh, those trains on them. And he said, here, each of George and I, he says, put that in your mouth. It'll kill the pain a little bit on there. And uh, everybody on the, on the club car, all the other players, man, we're sick too, Eddie. We need something. But Eddie wasn't passing out free booze other than the George and I. <laughs> uh, and um, you guys happened to go on to win the NIT that year. What was it like in uh, New York City? You you were there in 44 and 45, runner-up in 44, and you guys took home the title in 45. Um, can, can you tell us what it was like in, in New York yeah, City me, during the wartime? Well, let, let me tell you first a little bit of how we – 44, as you know, we wound up getting all the way to the finals – and we lost to St. John's University, a really great ball club. And uh, it was a tough loss, but they were a good ball club. So no, no fault with anybody. It's just a great game on there. When we got down to the 44-45 uh, season, we got down to the final game of the season. We we're going to be playing Ohio State. And that was a great Olsen that was the coach at Ohio State. Plus, they had a center that was an All-American named Arnie Risen. 
and the, the team that won that would get their choice of whether they wanted to go to the NIT tournament or the NCAA tournament. Now, at that time, the uh, NIT was a bigger tournament than the NCAA, and uh, it was a more prestigious. That was the national championship team uh, uh, game at that at that time. So uh, we played in a tough game, but the night before we, or the week before we played Ohio State, George wound up getting a terribly right angle sprain. Terrible. He had an actual separation in the the ankle a little bit. Uh, for two days on Monday and Tuesday, the first week before our game on Saturday night, he couldn't even put a shoe on. All they did was have him in the whirlpool trying to get the swelling out of the ankle on there. By the time Wednesday and Thursday came around, he was able to walk a little bit on the ankle but not run. Friday practice came, and he said to the coach, I'm going to run, get a shoe on me. So they were able to get a shoe. What they did is they cut the shoe on the outside and then taped it to his ankle so he could run. Now, he played. We got into the game on Saturday night, and uh, at the end of 40 minutes, the game was all tied. And I'll never forget him saying to us on there, I have a little bit of cuss words going at it, and he says, in this overtime, nobody touches the ball but me. Get me that ball. Well, we got him the ball. And the first nine points that were scored in the overtime were scored by George, and we wound up winning it. That gave Coach Meyer the choice of who, where did he want to go for the tournament, and he chose the NIT. Now, NCAA in those days, there were only eight teams in the whole country that were allowed to play in the NCAA tournament. So that was kind of a small tournament at that time. But that's the story on how we got to the NIT. Then getting to New York, that was a big experience. Uh, we stayed at the Paramount Hotel. I'll never forget that. Only a couple blocks away from uh, Madison Square Garden. It was very different. Uh, the garden in those days did not have good locker rooms or anything. So we would run over in our sweatsuits from the hotel to the Madison Square Garden and then sit in a room waiting for the game to start. So it was a different experience. What else do you want to know? Um. Let's see. Uh, what what was it like uh, in the NIT uh, games at that point? I mean, was it was it still a big crowd, even though it was during wartime? Um, no, the, you know, was, the crowds there... were. The arenas were filled. They were completely filled. They were sold out. Uh, that's something I'd like to mention to you about arenas back in those days. We're talking now a long time ago when almost everybody smoked. And uh, we would play double headers in the Chicago Stadium every Saturday night. We'd play 10 to 12 games a season there. And uh, we always played the second game. Northwestern University had the first game against usually a Big Ten school. And then we played the top schools in the country in the evening game. Well, when you got there, the smoke would start going up and you'd see the smoke coming down. By the time three hours or four hours went by, the smoke was coming down on the floor. You were actually, not actually running through a fog, but it almost appeared like that. There was no pure air in the area at that time. So this was a completely different condition to play basketball under. On a... Yeah, it certainly sounds uh, like quite the experience. Um, it, it, and, was, uh, it was very different. Go ahead. Um, and so after the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 
Um, and so after the 45 season, you uh, temporarily left the team to join the Navy and uh, head out. Is that right? Well, what happened is uh, I'd had to have a surgery. I was injured, and uh, we waited until the end of the season for the surgery, and I was able to do that. And I had enlisted in the Navy. The war was still going on at that time, and I had enlisted in the Navy. And they said, you're going to have to wait a couple of months until that surgery heals, but then you'll be coming in. So I said, okay, no problem with that, doing the, you know, waiting a little bit there. And what happened in going into the Navy, I was six foot five, and uh, the height limit in those days was six foot four. You couldn't get in. So uh, I was the last one in line. I had enlisted in it, and the guy doing the medical check, uh, Corman, he was all alone in the uh, auditorium with me at the same time. I was the last one in line. And uh, I said, man, I sure don't want to go in the Army. And uh, what can you do? And he looked around. And he says, dip your knees. And I dipped my knees. He swung the bar across. He says, 6'4", you pass. And I got into the Navy. So that was my <laughs> entrance into the Navy, sneaking in on the sidelines. <laughs> now, uh, that was because of watertight door uh, heights? Is that why that was cut off at 6'4"? The 6'4 was the limit. I, I think it's because of of the equipment that you had aboard ship, the clothing and everything else. Uh, I've, if I'm not mistaken, and I think I'm right, 6'4 uh, was the limit on Marines and sailors, and 6'6 six six was the limit on Army. I hope I'm right on that, but I think I am on it. Uh, in fact, my, my first inspection in the Navy, I got had my Navy uniform, and, uh, of course, the pants didn't quite fit me. They were too sh short, not quite long enough. And when the officer walked by and he saw that, he called back to somebody. He says, what in the hell is this man doing standing this way? And uh, he says, get him tailored clothes. So I wound up with tailor-made slacks after that. <laughs> so, and, I, was uh, very, I was very fortunate. <laughs> yeah, uh, that sounds like a... A, a fun uh, turn of events there for you. Um, did you, um, and after basic training, uh, did you happen to deploy anywhere with the Navy before returning to DePaul? No, uh, I was. I served in the West Coast for a short while. I went to school there, and then I was assigned to the brand new uh, aircraft carrier, the Valley Forge, and we were sent out to uh, Rhode Island to get a crew together for it. The ship was built in um, Philadelphia, and then when we picked the ship up, we sailed down the, uh, did our training down in the Cuba area. After our training, we went down through the Panama Canal and we're going out into the Pacific at that time. Now, this by this time was early 1947 on it. And uh, what happened is they were going to make a world cruise with that ship. And they said, unless you re-enlist, re you're going to have to get off the ship in San Diego. So I only had a little less than a half a year to go. So I did not re-enlist, and I stayed in San Diego for the rest of the war then. Okay. And um, after that, uh, you went back to DePaul and played uh, two more seasons with them? I played two more seasons, count, right? yeah. You're, you're and, correct. Uh, that go ahead. Um, and that included uh, another NIT semifinal appearance, correct? That is correct. My junior year, we were in the NIT at that year, too. The only year I missed was my senior year of making the NIT tournament. Okay. So 
Uh, Overall, we did pretty good. We got three out of four years of uh, playing there. A a record Tom Izzo would be pretty impressed by, I imagine. Well, it was a fun time. You you had asked how New York was. Uh, The Garden treated us very, very well. Each time we went, we wound up spending about a week or ten days there with the games that we played. And the days that we were not playing, uh, they almost always gave us a ticket to some kind of an event, maybe a hockey game that was going on or a, a, a theater show or something like that, or a movie, a good movie. And I thought that was rather nice. Being just poor kids from Chicago, uh, those were treats that we never expected and never had anywhere else. That's um, it's quite the fun experience then for you guys. Oh yeah, very, very much so. On uh, uh, the the uh, way of living was completely different on there. In the, during the day, if we were playing a game, the meals and everything were set up by the university, and we all had breakfast and dinner and so forth all together at the same time. Now, off days after practice, we were allowed to go off by ourselves and uh, have a meal anywhere we wanted to. And I think they gave us. I don't remember the exact number, but they may have given us as much as five dollars to go out and find the meal. And uh, in New York, that was not too bad. You could get a pretty decent meal for five bucks on that. Being big ball players, we ate a lot, and we were always looking for a pretty good uh, volume of food—not only quality, but a lot of volume to go along with it on there. <laughs> Um, and how would you uh, how do you say the college game has has changed since you were in it? Um, I, I know you uh, tend to still talk to DePaul uh, officials once in a while and whatnot, and um, I know you um, have done some work with people like Dick Vitale uh, with some charity work. So I, I know you stay clued into the college game nowadays. How, how would you say it's different than from when you played? Well, the, the ball players today are much much better than we ever were. And I'll, one of the reasons that I say this, the equipment that they have to train with today, the programs, the training that they have, the uh, coaches that they have to work with them. I, I always laugh watching the games today in college, and you see all the suits sitting on the bench. And usually the suits take up more space than the players on that. You know, these are all assistant coaches. We had one coach, Ray Meyer, and we had one assistant and uh, Bob New for a while was an assistant, or Frank, uh, Frank I can't remember Frank's last name now, but they were the uh, assistants. They did not have the equipment. We did not have all of these strength machines and weight machines and uh, diet things and all that. We, we had to kind of do for ourselves. A big weight machine for us was a barbell. That was about the only thing we could work with on that. It was a completely different world as far as exercise went. And uh, I, I know nowadays there's all these different far-flung early season tournaments in Hawaii, Puerto Rico. There's been games in uh, Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. Um, what was travel like for you guys back then? I mean, you would generally – how far away were some of the regular season games you would go that were the farthest? Well, let's see. The furthest games that we went to – I think Oklahoma was about as far as we ever went west. We played out at Oklahoma A&M a couple of times there. Uh, in the south, St. Louis and uh, Baltimore were about as far south. You didn't travel as much. Uh, first of all, 
you had to either travel by train and uh, or by car, and uh, it was not very easy to get around uh, at that time. So a great number of our games were played in the, I'll call it the northeast part of the country, uh, from Chicago all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and from, let's say, Atlanta up to uh, the Canadian border in that area. Okay. And uh, did you um, tend to play any teams uh, in particular? I know um mentioned Northwestern would play before you guys. Did you tend to, because uh, you were an independent at the time, were there uh, conferences in particular that you would target games against? Or uh, was oh, it just oh, yeah. kind of? Our big targeting games were anybody in the Big Ten and Notre Dame. We loved playing Notre Dame. And uh, I think over my career there, we split with Notre Dame on every season. I'm almost sure of that. I'm not positive of that. But that was a fun game. We looked forward to that because Coach Ray was a Notre Dame graduate, and uh, he was a big fan of theirs also, but he wanted to beat them because that was his school, you know. So that, that was a game we prepared for. That university and the University of Loyola in Chicago was an arch rival for us. And being the two Catholic schools in town, uh, the winner of that one was always a big event on there. Played some really great games against them. Nice. Um, and so uh, after your college days, you also played in the NBA for a while. Um, and this was fairly early on in their, their days, correct? That is right. The NBA started in 1949. It was the first year of the actual NBA. It was something else just a little bit before that. And uh, I got a call from a guy, uh, Dinty Moore was the guy's name as a scout. And uh, he called me and came out to see me, and he offered me a contract. And uh, I said, what's involved? And uh, I would be with Waterloo, Iowa, in the uh, league at that time. And I thought about it, and I said, what kind of money are we talking about? And he offered me $5,000 a year. Now, I'm a boy just getting out of college, and uh, a good job in those days was paid maybe $400 a month at the most. That would be a real good job. So $5,000 for a five-month or six-month stint was a heck of a lot of money, and I was more than willing to take it. Plus, I was getting married uh, in September of 49, so we could use the money to get, to get going on it. Yeah, I, I was very interested in it. Could I describe <laughs> the NBA to you a little bit at that time? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. The NBA was a group of smaller towns and larger towns. Let me go through a little bit. We had Chicago, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, um, and a couple more. Those were the big-name cities. Then we had teams like Waterloo, Sheboygan, Wisconsin, Anderson, Indiana, Rochester, and Syracuse, New York. These were the smaller towns on it. Uh, the places like Fort Wayne, we played in the gymnasiums of, uh, of high school. Sometimes the crowd would be no more than two or 3,000 people. I played in the armory up in Sheboygan, and we only sat, I think, I'm not positive of the number, somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 people. Every game was a sellout because that was the biggest event in the town all the time on there. And we brought all the big schools, uh, excuse me, all the big teams into, that, into those towns. It was a different way. In our traveling, we traveled uh, 
I started out with Waterloo, and I got traded after a month from Waterloo to Sheboygan. When I got over to Sheboygan and uh, got into my apartment there, uh, I said, how do we travel with this ball club? And all of the traveling was done. They had two DeSoto station wagons. Now, they were rather large station wagons, and you put six ball players in each one of the station wagons, plus your luggage and your playing gear. You can imagine these things were pretty dang crowded all the way through. We had very little elbow room, Donna. You had to drive from one city to the next for all the games. Uh, a rare treat is if you ever got to get on a train ride. We did it once from Chicago to Denver to play a game out in Denver, and that was the only train ride we ever had. And other than that, everything we did was in the automobile. Plus, you have but, to remember in, in those days, uh, Kevin, the uh, roads were two-lane highways. This was There were no super highways like I-95 and so forth and the, the big Eisenhower highways. Nothing like that existed in those days. So uh, getting around was a lot slower than it would be if you're trying to do it today. Yeah, the uh, um, Interstate Highway Act wasn't until... Uh, what was it? Um, it was the mid to late. It was Eisenhower. Eisenhower was in that. Yeah, once Eisenhower went in, that's he. He's the one who brought it into existence. You know, he built it just so that we would have runways to land airplanes on in case of a war. You know that. Don't <laughs> yeah, you? yeah, uh, yeah. He uh, he liked the autobahn so much and saw how important it was to troop movements and whatnot. I I know that was one of his big initiatives. I. I'm just trying to remember off the top of my head. I want to say it was 56 or 57 that he signed the Interstate Highway Act um, that, that and created the exactly Interstate right. Highway System. Yeah, that sounds mm-hmm. exactly right to me. On yeah. Now, I imagine blessing, that – I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Well, what I was laughing I, I was just going to – We would drive along these yeah. old roads before – and if we played a game, let's say, in uh, Town A – and we had another game the next night over in town B, and let's say that was 125 miles or 130 miles away from where we were at, we would end the game and usually drive at least a quarter or a half of the route that night yet before, and then get into a hotel or a motel. They'd always have arrangements somewhere on it. And uh, that way we didn't have to be driving so much the next day to play the game. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was a struggle yeah, getting and, uh... from one city to the next. Yeah, I, I imagine that train ride from Chicago to uh, Colorado was a heck of a lot more comfortable on the teeth than the uh, train ride to New York City. Amen. Oh, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I'm lucky. I had my fair share of bruises and bumps and so forth, but uh, I think I gave a few away too once in a while. I wasn't always the most gentle <laughs> person in town. <laughs> yeah, uh, George Mikan still, um, you know, throughout the rest of his life, he had a scarf on his elbow from those teeth. Right? He had a scar on that elbow from hitting me so much on there. And, uh, <laughs> we, we wound up pretty good friends. I, I like George and his wife, Pat, very much. And uh, we, we enjoyed each other. We, we spent a couple of years every day practicing. And uh, you can't guard someone that was as great as George was in those days that not learn a great deal. And what this did for me personally I became a very good defensive player against big men. I could play big men with no trouble at all because he was the best there was at the time. You know, George was voted the best player of the first 50 years of the century. 
Michael Jordan was the one that got it for the second set, uh, half of the year. So to, to be that good, you had to really do something well all the time. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, you also played um, a bit of against the Harlem Globetrotters as well, correct? Well, yeah, that's true. What happened on that, Kevin, uh, I played the first year with uh, Sheboygan, and I got, we got back to Chicago and had a wonderful job offer from a brewery in Chicago called the Peter Fox Brewing Company. And uh, I said, man, I'm going to take that job. Now, I'm almost 29 years old at that time, and getting started in business, I better get going or I'm going to be in trouble on it. Uh, what happened, Abe Saperstein called me, and he said, uh, what are you going to do next year? And he talked about he wanted four of us, a guy named Gillespie, Letty, Corliss, and myself, who all played at DePaul together. He said, I want you guys to play for me on weekends. I said, what do you mean? He said, every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, when we can, we'll put you in ball games in the, in the area. We, I want some different people to be out with the Globetrotters. And now I said, well, what kind of pay are we going to get? Well, he named the money, and it sounded pretty reasonable. In fact, it was more money on the weekend than I earned all week long at the brewery. So, so uh, I said, let me talk about it. And my wife and I chatted, and I said, you know, I'll be going a lot during the winter that way. And she says, we need the money. We had a new son. We needed a we had a house we were just buying. So money was important to us to earn enough of it. So she agreed to do do this on that. So I spent four seasons, winter seasons, with Abe playing on the Globetrotters, or, or against the Globetrotters on it. I, I, would, I would like to comment on the number of guys, the guys that I played against. For people that maybe don't know them, the guys that we were playing against were guys like Goose Tatum, Sweetwater Clifton, Marcus Haynes, Frank Washington, Irma Robinson, Pop Gates, and a couple of other wonderful ball players on it. These, in their day, were the best black players in the United States on there. They were outstanding ball players on it. So the skill level that you get from guarding people like that and playing against them is always a big event on there. And I enjoyed every minute of them. I knew the drills. I knew the schemes that they played, uh, when, especially when they were doing the showtime parts. And uh, mm -hmm. I had to know what to say and how to do it. Well, Goose would look at me, and he says, we're going to do ace and a half now. And I said, okay, I'll get you. And he says, you know what to do? And I would really get him madder in hell. I'd say, Oz knows what to do, boss. And he was ready to clobber me on it. But my job was to hit him over the right shoulder so that he could complain and go to the bench. And that's when they changed the ball for all the trick balls that they had, that they worked with. So that was a fun time. <laughs> nice. Um, and I guess uh, if, certainly if you have any other thoughts that you want to add, feel free to, to chime in with them any time. Um, but I guess uh, my next question would be, um, you, you touched a little bit on the change in uh, training equipment and staff and whatnot. Um, but, I mean, there's been so much change in basketball over over the decades. Um, just What are some of your thoughts on the evolution of the game? I mean, there's there's a three-point line added to college ball. There's a shot clock. Yeah, it certainly changes to how the NBA operates. Um, I mean, just if you have any general thoughts, I, we'd love to hear them. Okay, well, one of the things that a lot of people don't know is back in our day, the uh, zone, the blue zone, or the 
from the free throw line in was only six foot wide, and uh, it was called the key rather than anything else. And George got so good from that position in that key, he knew exactly how to make the pivot, and he had a wonderful bank shot with either hand. Well, they changed the rules because he was too good at that, and they made the lane uh, 12 foot wide then. They expanded it. Then we we played a game one time against uh, Oklahoma A&M, and that's when Hank Iba was coaching out there, and he, uh, he was a big staller of the ball. Well, I'll never forget Ray said, get me a lead at halftime. We gave him a one-point lead at halftime, and he looked at me. He says, you get the tip when this thing goes on. We had a tip. We got the ball. He called timeout. We were three or four seconds into the game. He called a timeout, and he told the guys, sit on the ball until they come out of that defense that they have. Now, they had a defense that they wouldn't move away from the center zone on it. And so Whitey Kahan, I will never forget, it, sat for several minutes on the ball while the fans were booing and hissing and everything else. And uh, because of that, they decided this is no good. They had to have a shot clock. And that's part, one of the reasons the shot clock came into existence on there. <laughs> does, that, does that fill you in a little bit? Yeah, uh, definitely um, definitely a fun fun perspective. Um, and I, I guess... Uh, I suppose. Uh, what what are um, how how do you like March Madness today? Um, yeah, I mean it, it evolved from I love the it. 18th. I, th- I think it's wonderful. I, I I have high expectations to see good games all the time in March Madness. I think the coaches that are doing the jobs today are just fantastic. They uh, have got the boys really ready to go all the time. You know, it, this is big, big, big business now on it. Nothing like it was years ago on there, but. Uh, I give them credit. The uh, young men that are being trained, um, they're being uh, allowed to earn a decent living going into the professional sport. The only thing I have against the whole thing, a lot of young men think they can make it and they're not quite good enough and they don't spend enough time studying and getting an education. You still have to get an education to live in this world on a long time process. Very few people are going to make the professional level and make enough money not to ever have to work again. So I suggest to any young man, get your education first, then worry about being a ball player. Certainly great advice. I I think we um we would all generally echo that as well. Well, everyone that I knew that I played with in the, at the Paul, I I would say Ninety percent of our guys all graduated with degrees. Um, I can't say everything was perfect, and a lot of them did extremely well. On my ball club that I played with, two became medical doctors at the end of their careers. Uh, two became very well-known lawyers. One had an invention of his own and uh, wound up head of a large major corporation. So our kids did extremely well uh, at the university. I had a good job all my life. So I can't complain at all either. I was able to make a living. Yeah, you did really well as a, a salesman and manager. Um, I, I'd like to call attention to that, just uh, as um, kind of a, a proud relative on on that. You had a great career after basketball as well. Well, thank you. I, I was very lucky. I worked for a major corporation, a chemical company, and I spent 32 years with them. And I rose up pretty well in the organization because I had fun. I really enjoyed my work, and I enjoyed the people that I had to deal with all the time. 
My hand is starting to go numb on me. <laughs> well, we uh, we we don't want to uh, hold you up too much longer. We we really appreciate the time with this, and um, you know, if if you have any closing thoughts, feel free to add them. But we we really appreciate it. It's been a fascinating um, fascinating interview with you. Well, I hope you uh, can use it for some reason. You know, I, I thank you very much for calling me in the first place. I have a pretty damn good memory yet on everything that ever happened at the Paul and in the pros. And I'm very proud of that. But mostly I'm proud of the guys that I knew and what they did with their lives after they got out of the school. And so we can be very proud of that. Most well, certainly. And uh, I I really appreciate the time again. It's uh, been great talking with you. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate talking with you. And, uh, I hope everything works out, and this thing works for you, whatever you're going to do with it. And there you have it. That's our show for today. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Jack Phelan. Uh, again, thank you to Jack for coming on with us. We really, really appreciate his time, and we hope that you enjoyed the interview today. Uh, truly a great chance talking with him. Um, and, uh, yeah, for uh, the future, be sure to subscribe to our podcast uh, if whatever platform you prefer to get your podcast on, uh, you know, you'll not only get of bangerangs and daggers, you'll also get five heart podcast, uh, Paloma podcast, John's post-life crisis, and some other great content from coordination radio here. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at bangs and dags and myself at Sparty on Huskers, uh, Nate and Patrick as well. Um, yeah, but, uh, that's it folks. We hope you're, able to stay safe during this time and uh yeah please uh oh um also please you know um rate us on on that or leave a comment on the page uh you know we love uh hearing from you guys so once again thank you and hope you enjoy the rest of your week <laughs>